Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with local poet and educator and printmaker, Gary Young. Gary is the author of several collections of poetry. His most recent books are That's What I Thought, winner of the Lexi Rudnitsky Editor's Choice Award from Percy Books, and Precious Mirror, translations from the Japanese. His books include Even So, New and Selected Poems, Pleasure, No Other Life, winner of the William Carlos Williams Award, Braver Deeds, winner of the Peregrine Smith Poetry Prize, The Dream of a Moral Life, which won the James T. Fellin Award, and Hands. Two new books, Taken to Heart, 70 Poems from the Chinese, and Red Cedar, Red Pine, winner of the Blue Light Book Award, will be published later this year. He's received a Pushcart Prize and grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, National Endowment for the Arts, the California Arts Council, and the Vogelstein Foundation, among others. In 2009, he received the Shelley Memorial Award from the Poetry Society of America. He teaches creative writing and directs the Cowell Press at UC Santa Cruz. And I should mention that he was Santa Cruz's first poet laureate as well. Welcome, Gary. So good to have you here at The Hive. Thank you, Julie. It's really my pleasure to be here. It's we've known each other for a number of years now, and um, it's just terrific that we have you in our midst with everything you've done. And of course, this bio is quite laudatory oh. <laughs> <laughs> as bios go. So we're going to hear uh, several of Gary's prose poems today. But something we often do here on The Hive is we ask our guests to bring a poem of another writer they admire and share it with the Hive family. So Gary has, has brought a poem, has been gracious enough to comply with that request. And um, Gary, I'd like to ask you to read the poem you brought by Stephen Crane. But if you, if at first, maybe it would be helpful if you told our listeners a, a little bit about Stephen Crane. Many of many people know him for Red Badge of Courage, but I'm not sure that they're as well acquainted with Stephen Crane, the poet. Well, Stephen Crane was one of those writers that actually um, sparked my my writing when I was younger. I had determined to be a poet. Um, before I ever read anything by Stephen Crane. But uh, I read The Red Badge of Courage, uh, and I was so taken by it that I started reading everything. I read all of his newspaper articles that he had written, uh, and his novels, short stories, but these little gnomic poems, and that's the thing about Stephen Crane that's so interesting. Uh, he was, you know, some would say a realist, some would say a naturalist, well, Maggie, a girl of the streets, probably would be more naturalism than realism, but um, a very, very um, uh, precise writer, uh, not given to elaboration. Um, and yet he wrote these poems that were almost mystical. Um, and and they, they really moved me uh, 
all of his poems or almost all of his poems are untitled. My poems are untitled. Definitely got got that from from Crane, and um, and I just love his little his little poems that seem to just appear out of nowhere. And in fact, uh, he once told Hamlin Garland, uh, who was a friend. He said, where, where do these come from? And, and he called his poems pills. And he said, the pills just line up in my head. Uh, I write them down. Simple as that. What a great so this image. One, this one is not titled. Um, and it's, um, it's, 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 wonderful. it's fairly typical of Crane. On the horizon, the peaks assembled. And as I looked, the march of the mountains began. As they marched, they sang, I, we come, we come. Such a great little poem, so odd and precise at the same time. It's hard to imagine someone who could write the open boat, writing Ooh. a poem in which peaks assemble, go on a march and say, yep, here we come. And that's the poem. That's one of the beautiful things. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with his poems, like uh, a man uh, chased the horizon, faster and faster they sped. I accosted the man. You can never, I said, you lie, he said, and ran on. You know, he, he has all these little, these little parable poems. And, uh, but I, I pr prefer these poems that just seem to come out of nowhere, um, throw an image at you, and then just dissolve into the mist. Well, and it's it's it, it's in keeping with kind of the imagination that cr could create the red badge of courage without ever having served in battle. So that that says a lot about his mind and the way it worked. I think it's just one of those creative blitzes that's you know so um, um, incredible and so prolific in such a short life too. He only lived till twenty eight. Right. Yeah, he didn't make it to 29. He wrote five or six novels. Um, I've got two big volumes of correspondence. I mean, uh, well, a big volume of, of personal correspondence, two volumes of newspaper uh, correspondences, and, uh, and two books of poems. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. It, what, an out, what an output he was able to contribute in a short period of time. Um, yeah, the the one, you know, like you said, that you prefer the ones that kind of come from nowhere and have a much more abstract kind of quality to them. Um, he also wrote, you know, a man said to the universe, sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. That's a lovely one. Yeah, that's yeah. just that that quirky, terse, ironic sense of humor so well it's been god closing in on 60 years and they continue to reward rereading absolutely thank you for bringing stephen crane to the hive gary that's it's a treat to hear him and to just to have that sense of the his place not only in the canon but in in your personal trajectory with the prose poem because the prose poem has so much, it exists in such a, a almost a rarefied spot within poetry. 
Um, and your, your poetry in particular also has so much precision. I was doing a little research. The uh, Imagist poetry, um, especially William Carlos Williams, who I think you probably feel as though I'm, I'm guessing that you may owe something to him. I mean, the Red Wheelbarrow is a beautiful little piece that's just got this brief little, I mean, most, most of our listeners, I would think, know that poem. But um, it, before you read your first poem, I'd love to hear who among poets and in the canon um, besides Crane and possibly William Carlos Williams have had an impact on you? Well, Williams, every American writer owes Williams a debt. Um, <clears throat> will be a long list, but um, uh, Jeffers, of course, uh, Whitman, weirdly, because he writes these long, long lines um, in some ways, uh, you know, Dickinson, of course, but I'm actually more attuned to Everson because just as, you know, my old mentor, Bill Everson, turned uh, in American Bard, he, he took the introduction to Leaves of Grass and uh, turned it into a prose, into poem, broke it into lines. And um, I feel the same thing way about about uh the prose poem it's just in reverse um and and so uh whitman you know the, when you have lines and so many long ranging poems um you read specimen days um those are all prose poems you know i mean it's that's not how he he didn't call them poems but they certainly are and um and so he was a big influence has been um father hopkins john you know, Gerard Manley Hopkins is a big pal, Elizabeth Bishop, um, I could go on, you know, the usual suspects. Yeah, the and usual. And of course, all the, you know, all the uh, particularly Chinese poems, poets, uh, uh, particularly those in, in the Tong and Song, so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought in um, Bill Everson because he's such, a, he's another local poet who I'm, I don't know that maybe some of our listeners, especially our younger listeners, know about him. And he was so important and vital here in Santa Cruz and at the university um, in the 70s and 80s. Um, can you talk a little bit about Bill and his, his impact locally? Well, Bill had an enormous impact um, on the poetry scene here for, well, for from the time he got here, in around 1971, I think, uh, until he died in the mid nineties. Uh, he had been Brother Antoninus, a lay uh, priest and, and uh, for 20 years, he had, he had served in that capacity. He'd been married before, he was a conscientious objector during World War II, uh, went to Walport up in Oregon, learned how to print, um, and then when he got out, he he decided that uh, he was going to his his marriage had had disintegrated. He wanted to be a a farmer and grow grapes, which he had done. But um, after the war and after the dissolution of his marriage, he he entered the priesthood, and uh, and then wrote 
you know, some of the most extraordinarily uh, erotic poems that you can find. Uh, uh, Priapic would be, you know, sort of a, it would, it would cut them short because they really are, you know, he has, he has a poem called River Root where the whole Mississippi becomes a phallus. And I mean, it's just, it's pretty crazy stuff. Um, and, and a lot of, of the poems he, he writes uh, about Catholicism are, are very, very um, erotic. Yeah, Bill was quite a presence here in Santa Cruz and his eroticism was so palpable and so full. Um, I think, you know, his, his ability to connect with students and do that kind of rich, uh, quirky, almost disdainful <laughs> uh, it play. Shocking. And it was it, shocking. Yeah. yeah. And it was a little it was a little discomforting for a lot of people, especially the Catholics. He was the preeminent Catholic poet in America in the second half of the 20th century. Um there's I mean that he's it's uncontested. That's a, a big deal. And then he left the church and he left it in a way that was um shocking in its own right. He was working as a as a kind of therapist. And he met a young woman, 18 years old, I believe at the time, Susanna, and, and uh, he fell in love with her. And he gave a reading at UC Davis. And in those days he would read in his monk's robes with a cowl and the whole bit. And he got up on stage and he said, I'm, you know, I, I have an announcement. And he tore off his, you know, he gave a reading and then he said, I can't go on with this. And he tore off his vestments and left them on the stage and he left grabbed the girl who had a child, a baby, and off they went to Stinson Beach. And uh, and then he, from there, he went down to Santa Cruz and, and became poet in residence at, at uh, UCSC. Talking about the um, antithetical way to address the church's calling. <laughs> well, it's interesting. He never, a lot of people assume that he had, that he gave up Catholicism. He absolutely did not. He made it very clear um, to me, and uh, I'm sure to others, he never gave up Catholicism. Um, he just gave up his role as, as a lay priest. Yeah. He got yeah. into all this other stuff. He was really into to astrology. Um, I went through, um, so I was one of many people who took care of him in his last couple of years when he was really in decline and uh, he'd split up from his wife and it was he was in pretty bad shape with the Parkinson's. But we, uh, after he died, I went through and, and cataloged uh, his library. And uh, besides finding wonderful things like the Jane Fonda workout book, um, <laughs> lots of books on, on astrology and sun signs. And uh, he was very, very deeply influenced by that. But it did not interfere with his sense of, of uh, a Catholic um, view of creation and of life at all. Any trouble reconciling those things? Right, right. He didn't see any contradiction between the two whatsoever. No. Yeah, <laughs> that's just great. It's just great. He he was something else. All right. Well, and I know that um, uh, you also created a book with um, Gene, and I'm wondering if you could talk just briefly about that. 
It's a book called The Geography of Home, and it's really the thing that crystallized my wanting to write prose poems. Um, I had written a prose poem for my first book, as I mentioned, and I've got uh, my the length, the measure of my poems reading longer and longer, my second book. And then uh, I wrote this piece to go with all of our prints that we printed, The Geography of Home. When you open it up, it's it's over two feet from side to side, uh, all these relief prints. And on the back, the text is printed in a single line. It runs almost 100 pages. And the light bulb went off. And went, that's how I want my poems to read. I want them to be long, one-line poems, utterances that begin, and it had no no title on the page. It was just it just started and then went, and of course um, that coincided with with my the love of my old pal Stephen Crane and and so many of uh, Chinese and Japanese poems, particularly the Japanese poems that uh, the tonka and the haiku that don't have titles generally. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, and we're speaking today with poet, educator, and printmaker Gary Young. Unfortunately, we got interrupted in our discussion, and uh, when we picked up, Gary was talking about the Japanese and Chinese poetry that he's studied over the years. It's all about duty which um, isn't popular, uh, certainly not in this country. And I think even in, in, in China, uh, it's considered old fashioned, but I just love Confucius. And even though he talks a lot about um, right work and ancestors and what to do, a lot of, a lot of the, the analysts will just deal with some of his disciples. And those are my very favorite ones. Somebody will say, you know, that guy Lee, he's kind of a jerk. He, you know, he didn't do what, you know, we were expecting him to do. And I really don't like him. And and then Master Kung comes in, you know, Confucius says, oh, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. Lee's really great. He's a good guy. You're miss, you're missing the point on Lee. And he just kind of will school him and say, no, no, that guy, pay attention to him because he's, there's more there than you think. And I love those where he, he, he calls people out and, 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 um, raises people up, and so, so I have a lot of poems that that uh, in which I do that with Gene, but I also a lot of other people. I, um, after turning seventy, uh, you know, more of your friends are dead than alive, for most of us, sadly, um, and so there's a lot of poems about uh, people that I lost, some during the pandemic, and some just in the last few years, um, so. That's a too long introduction, uh, just like my bios. Too long, uh, too long introduction on for, the, for this book, um, American Analects. Um, okay, but this is a a poem. Uh, I was lucky enough to go. Uh, my wife and I went to Japan. Um, I had been there before working on the book of translations, um, but our youngest son Cooper got a grant to go and follow Basho. Um, for two months. Um, I remember when you headed out there, yeah. And he wrote a book and got it published about uh, his his adventures. But we spent a couple of weeks together uh, first in Kyoto, which I, I love. And so um, this is a poem about that. My youngest son considers the effect of imaginary numbers on imaginary numbers. 
His brother ponders the duality of abstraction and specificity, while I wrestle with the concept of essential nature. We are pilgrims. The branch of a willow bounces off its reflection on the surface of a canal. Mallards bob in a murky pond. A crow tears at the body of a rat on the gray tile roof of a temple. This poem, Gary, is so emblematic of exactly what you were talking about. We have all these different people and all these different um, things in nature that are, are talking to one another and telling each other, <laughs> listen, <laughs> that guy has something important to say. <laughs> so, um, and the, this one's going to be in the new book? Yes. And when's that coming out? Well, I have to finish it first, and then I uh, have to get it published. Okay. okay. So not within a year. Mm -hmm. uh, I do most of my writing in the summer. Uh, I'm still teaching, and uh, I didn't start teaching full-time until I was almost 50. <laughs> and um, so I, I was used to writing whenever I wanted to, printing whenever I wanted to. Um, and when I first started teaching full-time, I'd always taught poetry in junior high schools and stuff like that for the Cultural Council for years. Um, but full-time teaching uh, changed things up because I found that I, they're just, I couldn't focus enough on my own work while I was teaching. I was too focused on my students. And uh, the first two or three years, it was kind of hellish because I tried and it was just impossible. And I finally decided there's, you know, there's, it's silly to fight this. You're just going to make yourself go nuts. So I I do I take notes you know I still fill notebooks during the school year but I do most of my writing in the summer so one more summer I ought to be I ought to be able to finish it finish it and, good and then good. and then I'll send it off my uh, my publisher has first dibs at least the publisher who, who uh, published my last book um, and if they want it then I would presume it would come out within a year and if they don't then I'll do that slog of sending poems out trying trying to find that other publisher yeah that is a big slog the pope is yeah so talk a, a little bit if you would because i know from uh prior uh conversations either or talks that you've given about the prose poem and your your desire or idea or in your imagination how the prose poem would just continue and continue and continue that it wouldn't be constrained by the page well it's conceit of course and, and although I, I i did at one point i i printed a, one of the poems in my first book of prose poems days um with an artist book titled a single day and it was one poem and the book is is a miniature book it's only about two by three maybe two and a half by three and a half um, but the poem itself, uh, I made a uh, paper pulp sculpture to look like a seascape and there's lightning in it. And, and then there's a poem about two girls being hit by lightning at the harbor mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's folded in as an accordion. But when you open the book, you can take the, the edge of that sheet and pull it out. And the poem is almost two feet long. And I thought it would be interesting to do an artist book that was maybe four inches tall and three feet long or wide. And, uh, but the, the, the conceit got 
I, I, it just didn't excite me doing it, you know. And and the truth is, I think most of us can read a prose poem and realize that um, that this is the same <laughs> object um, moving through the same, you know, literary object. So exactly, yeah. But it it, it somehow it's jiving to me with your fascination of um, Chinese poetry or Japanese poetry and that the on the page, that's a very different conceit going up and down or right to left. Um, and just, I'm thinking about your thoughts there as you write and as especially knowing that you've done translation there how that works for you. I printed uh, the first copy in English, and it was actually the first edition of Mallarmé's Un Coup de Day, Throws the Dice, Will Never Abolish Chance, a big letterpress project. And uh, if anybody has seen it, or uh, if, if they have seen it, they will not forget it. It's a monumental book, very, very large, and it utilizes um, Roman and Italic and all cap types in every size from 10 point up to 72 point. And they're spread out all over the pages. Um, and the book is meant to be read not just on verso and recto, but across the gutter. And so it's, uh, it's symphonic when you look at it. And, um, and that was a huge, huge uh, milestone for me because it made me realize as he said he took a lot of heat they said this is this is insane this is you know this isn't even poetry you've 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 exploded the poem and he says no 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 um all i've done is rearrange the silence around the poem oh that's great yeah um he says in every poem there is silence around it on the page there's a visual visual silence and all i've done is rearrange that silence it seems to me that that's what a, one of the things that at least that's one of the things that my prose poems try to do mm -hmm. is 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 be a little island of 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 um, of language of of utterance in the this sea of tranquility of silence. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's it's such an interesting um, you know whenever whenever things push against the um, status quo there's resistance. So clearly you, because of the way that you're writing and the things that I think you're drawn to, I always sense a little, a little bit of a push against that status quo. And you've landed so well in your own voice and style. Um, and I'm just thinking about, you know, all of the, the poets that are published now and, were published back then, the fact that especially with the Imagist poets, they were pushing against romanticism. And, uh, you know, is, is there a, a push that you feel like that you want to do? Or are you, are you comfortable where you are? Well, every one of my books has been different. I mean, my first two books were, although there was a prose poem in the first book, Hands, uh, my first two books were lineated and a lot of accentual, you know, poems in there. Um, but the, the measure kept getting longer and longer. 
And then I did this, this book with Gene Holton, my mentor that I'm writing about in this new book, um, where we split up doing images for a, a large letterpress artist book. And the book opens up and it's, it's two and a half feet wide and all these prints. And then I wrote a text for it and printed it along the back. So it's almost 100 pages of a single line of text. Uh, this essentially a, a, a long text in praise of the domestic because there's a lot of landscape and interior and exterior landscapes of the central California coast. And uh, that just made the light go on in my head. That's what I wanted my poems to do. I wanted my poems just to move. And so that is a, you know, that's one way to do it. You just keep following that line across page after page after page. Um, as far as, as fighting against anything at, at this stage of my so-called career, um, I, I, there's, there's very little fight left in me. I'm just happy to try to get a, a poem out now and then. Um, I've just, <clears throat> it's interesting because when I first published or when I wrote my first book of prose poems, I sent it to my publisher uh, at Brown and, and I was so excited because I'd won a prize with my second book and I thought this book is so much better. He's going to love it. And I sent it there and I was so excited waiting for uh, his response. And I got a letter and I opened it up and the first line was, you have betrayed poetry. And that was deflating. Oh, just, um, a, just a bit. And and so, it, you know, that was back 30 years ago. And so um, the prose poem, not unknown, was, was not... Uh, a regular in the in the uh, contemporary scene, mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it didn't have to fight. You know, there, there was there was nothing to fight against because there was <laughs> you you felt sort of alone. There were other people writing prose poems, but not many. Right, that's no longer the case. The prose almost every book of poems you pick up is going to have at least one or two prose mm -hmm. poems in it. Right, um, right. And so it's just, it's become acceptable an acceptable form. And that's how I think of it. A lot of people, and I disagree with a lot of prose poets about this, who think that it's a genre and I don't, I think it's a form mm -hmm. like the sonnet. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but it's just how I've learned to want to write and, and getting back to the, the Chinese and particularly the, the Japanese poetry, um, my whole, creative uh, thrust is always to eliminate everything I can in a drawing and a woodcut in a book and in a poem, you know, it's all about, you know, boiling it down, extracting everything that's, that's not unnecessary. And then, and then dealing with what's left and trying to do as much as you can with as little as you can. Which is, which is, it should be the goal, I would think, of every poet to get down to that essence, to be concise. I love the the Pascal quote, um, Blaise Pascal writing a letter to a friend and saying, I'm sorry, sir, this letter is so long. I didn't have time to make it shorter. So <laughs> it's it's a craft to, to do that honing, as anyone will tell you. It looks simple, but it is not. So well, in a lot of prose poems, a lot of reasons people are attracted to the prose poem is for its expansiveness. Um, and so a lot of prose poems, I would say even most prose poems, they're at least half a page, a page, two pages long. People, especially those who, who work in either received forms or in free verse, 
they love to be able to just like start the engine and woo and off they go. And my probes aren't like that. You know, they're much they're they're closer to high bun or you know the longest ones are more like sonnets. My longest my long prose poems are, are really are just sonnets in prose. And then my shorter ones really are just haiku or high bun um, or she in prose. Yes, which is a good way to go. I'm going to stop us just for a second, Gary, for a station ID. Uh, you're listening to the High Poetry Collective here at KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julia Chiapella, talking with local poet, Gary Young. You can follow the High Poetry Collective at High Poetry on Twitter or at the High Poetry Collective on Facebook. Our website can be found at hivepoetry.org, where you'll also find all our radio shows archived so you can listen at any time. Let's, let's move to another poem, if you would, Gary. Sure. You call it this time, Julia. Which one do you like? Um, how about We Grew Up? So this is from my last book, um, That's What I Thought. Um, and it's a poem that came out of the realization that, that all the men, or practically all the men on the street where I grew up, had been in World War II and had come back with varying degrees of PTSD. They were just a mess. And we didn't realize it, uh, but they certainly were in retrospect. And as I, you know, as friends came back from Vietnam and, and um, you started seeing it, you go, oh my God, that's my dad. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, that's, uh, oh, that's Mr. Mamont. Ooh. Um, and so this is a poem about, about just some of the, the guys in the street who we just thought of as dads, but in retrospect, they were very much damaged dads. We grew up hearing war stories. The man next door came to beside his downed plane and discovered someone cutting off his finger for his ring. In the backyard, we shot the pistol he'd taken from an Italian officer. My father hunted men in the caves of Okinawa his friend found the skull of a Japanese soldier there, polished it to a bright sheen, and sent it home <clears throat> to his father. Down the block, a neighbor gave his son a handful of photographs, women playing with their breasts, a man entering a woman from behind, a group of soldiers standing in a circle around someone with a sword. Such extravagant, incomprehensible gifts, the women, the gun, a man kneeling beside his own head, which had fallen a short distance from his body. Ooh. I really love that one. Uh, and that, I can't remember who, uh, oh, on one of your jacket covers, one of the, um, the blurbs talked about you writing with a calm sadness. <laughs> And, and this one kind of embodies that for me. Um, such horrific imagery. And I, I'm, you know, trauma is such a buzzword right now these days. Um, we're all traumatized. But these folks coming back from the war, it's, it was a whole different level. Um, a little generation, you know, I mean, it's the, the great 
you know, the greatest generation. Right. They, they came back, they, they went back to school, they, you know, they built businesses, they did all the stuff that, that made post-war America rich, essentially. Um, right, right. But rich rich for a certain few, but, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. but at what cost? That's just it. So yeah. many people were, were left out of that. Mm -hmm. And those who participated, um, in some ways, you know, it's the madman thing or the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, I, I got to go to work. I got to go home. I got to go to work. I got to go home. I mean, it was, it was like you, you won the war. You made America free to be a slave in, in, in this. In the machine. machine, the machine of yeah. capitalism. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, they won, but they, they still lost. And in the meantime, there, these are men who were very, very much haunted um and there was always you know there were there were the guys who couldn't stop talking about it let me tell you about the time that the you know the bomb hit the off the starboard pile and it's like oh my guy we're here he got killed and i would it's like yeah you told me that story before like yesterday um mm -hmm. and then there's some people who would never talk it never yeah, my, ever yeah. say a word yep. my father was one of those so yeah, yeah you were you were at the battle of the bulge weren't you and you just don't you just don't get anything no month, mm -hmm. you might yeah you're my uncle said that you that you just get nothing nothing there was some kind of ethos around that i think for certain men so i think certain men, well there was that certainly but i think a lot of men just couldn't face it yes yeah. flat out could not go there right yeah but this this poem especially with 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 the images that you have there especially that last one oof, a man kneeling beside his own head which had fallen a short distance from his body, and really powerful, really powerful. Yes, a photograph of that to a ten-year-old boy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Who does that? Men who are who are pretty messed up. Who sends a skull back to their father? <laughs> exactly. Your dad, I polished it all up for you. Yeah. I like it. Not the father who opened <laughs> that package. I mean, it's just terrifying to imagine that. It's pretty terrifying, and yet there's a certain a certain uh, segment of the population that really uh, kind of as as can be witnessed by the all the video games we have now. It, I I don't get it, so I can't really comment on it. Um, but it's alarming, and uh, th that kind of imagery, that kind of attitude, that kind of whether it was celebratory or uh, meant to shock, I, I'm not sure. Um, I appreciate your putting that in the poem and highlighting the absurdity and the, the, the violence that's there. Um, let's do another one. You read another one. Um, I'm wondering, let's see, what about the poker one? This is another poem from the book I'm working on now. And, uh, I live in the woods. Um, the birds are a big part. I mean, I'm, a lot of birds. There's a lot of birds in my poems, uh -huh. um, but they're you know they're sort of my my neighbors here. So they're, they're I see them more often than I see people. Uh, <laughs> this morning, I was playing poker in a dream, and a nuthatch sitting next to me said, "This game's too rich for my blood," and flew away. And then I woke and heard the dawn, the dawn chorus 
every bird in the canyon trilling and chirping at once. I used to believe their songs meant, here I am. Now I think they're saying, where am I? This is just a great little poem. Well, when, um, you know, when, when, when I was younger, you know, they'd sing and it was just like, hey, it's me, I'm a bird in the tree. <laughs> and, you know, and it's like, you know, you get older and you wake up and, you, and first of all, you go, okay, I guess I'm alive. And then you go, yeah, okay, I am alive. This is good. This is a good thing. It's going to be a good day if I can get out of bed. Yeah. Uh, and then you hear the birds and, and it's hard not to think that they're feeling sort of the same way. It's just like, they haven't got a lot of consciousness, right? I mean, they're, they're birds. They call bird braid for a reason. And then they wake up and it's like, well, you know, you, all of a sudden I was starting to think of, they go, what the hell am I? Where am I? Who am I? Uh, oh, I'm a bird. I can sing. Okay. And then, you know, just they try it out. They go, okay, all right, I got this. Whew. But I love this poem because, because of that very thing which also is almost a commentary on the aging process too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, we're continuing. And, and, and there's some, uh, there's a bit of, of Zen in there too. You know, um, we're in this moment, we're waking up to this moment. Who are we in this moment? Where are we in this moment? So that, that I think it accomplishes all those things in a very short little space of time which is just lovely. Well, thank you. <laughs> and I love the fact that, you know, it's, it's in this dream where you're playing poker. That, that just gives it added little um, bit of oomph there that uh, it, it's almost as to the absurdity of the whole thing. You know, the dream, this life, all of it. Playing poker with a bird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in the dream, that was not unusual, right? It's just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Hatch, I'm calling you. It's like, whoa, hey, no, this is way over my head. I got to get out of here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as, as you say, you know, birds show up a lot in your poems. You have, you have lots of not only birds, but flowers, mountains, all of those natural elements that are there. And part of that is because of, of where you live. But I also think it's, it's just, your orientation. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, no, no, and it, it's it's definitely part of the influence of of reading so much Chinese poetry, in which uh, you know, landscape, the characters is mountains and streams. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. That's what a landscape is: mountains and streams. It that's, is, and there's a whole school of poetry called mountains and streams. So, um, yeah, I I've always loved nature. I I live out in the woods and. I really appreciate the poetry that that deals with it because even though we're you know nature is under attack and we're altering it, um, I mean this morning there was a uh, an article titled something like "This is the end of winter," you know it's, you know it's like what do you mean it's the end of winter and they're you know they were saying well God it's going to be hard to have the Winter Olympics because no place is going to be cold enough even if we make the snow so even though we are um altering nature irreversibly sadly um nature is still nature it's outside of us it's part of the bigger uh picture of of the earth and yeah it's hard to ignore it i can't help but i mean 
you're absolutely right. Nature's going to survive us. We're just a little blip on the planet. So um, that's not to excuse our behavior, but um, she'll survive. We yeah, just one won't. way or another. <laughs> one, one way or another. Um, I, you know, when I was looking up imagism um, and doing a little research, they talked about the precision of imagery and the clear, sharp language that's in imagism. And, you know, that that's so clearly what you're doing in so many of these poems that it, all of the poems that you write, they're very clear. They're predominantly short. I mean, they obviously take from uh, the Japanese poets that you've studied. Um, in achieving that style and over the years, as you've worked toward this, do you find, I mean, you talked a little bit about this earlier, the honing, the precision, how, how has that become easier for you as you've developed as a poet? It hasn't gotten harder, but it hasn't gotten easier. No, it, yeah. it's, um, it's hard. I tell my students, it's, it's hard to write a bad poem. You know, so if you're trying to write a good poem, you're going to work a lot harder. Um, so, uh, no, I, I, I wish, I wish, I, I can't say that I've developed a facility for it. I certainly, there's muscle memory there, but getting to that place when you're cutting things out and when you're, when you're trying to make connections, um, keep the connections in the poem, but remove the pieces that were there that you thought you needed to have in there to make those connections and go, mm, I think I can make it without that, but I'm going to have to do these other things. It doesn't get any easier, or at least it hasn't gotten any easier for me. Yeah, well, that's probably a good thing, I think. You don't want it to be too easy. We're talking to Gary Young here on the Hive Radio Collective, Poetry Collective at KSQD 90.7 FM. Yeah, I'm thinking that that's, you know, it's a good thing that that's hard. It's And again, as we said before, you know, you um, as you get older, everything is harder. You know, it just is. Um, getting out of bed, taking a walk, reading the paper, it doesn't matter. Your eyes are going, your legs are going. Um, and to think that it's not or pretend it's not it just is a fool's errand. You know, it's like, I got to work harder to get my brain. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, so yeah. if, if it was getting easier, uh, my own physical diminution has maybe <laughs> leveled that out a little bit. <laughs> All right, well, how about another poem? Maybe the one, um, He Wheeled a Corpse. All right. So I have a friend who uh, used to be a land surveyor and surveyed uh, the military cemetery in Colma. If you've driven by on 280 and you see miles and miles um, she's the one who mapped all that. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's where my grandmother's buried. City of the Dead. That's what they call it nearby. Mm -hmm. um, he wheeled a corpse into the narrow furnace and said, there's something I want to show you. He lit the gas and the head rose from the table. The arms flew open 
and the body sat there for a moment in the fire. The flesh peeled away from the bones, and the bones snapped and burned with a fierce blue blade. When the oven had cooled and the door was opened, the ashes and bits of bone threw off a pale opalescent light. That light, he said, is what I wanted you to see. What is there to say about that one? Um, the, the fact that the, the image is so powerful on that one, you can't back away from it. And the flesh peeling away from the bones and the bones snapping and burning. How, what, how did you come to that one? I mean, that, if, if, if this, this was a poem that was just, it almost seems as though it was just presented to you by that moment. Well, the poem is really about the light. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. That's what the poem is. It's, I don't believe this. Yeah. You know, it's just like, forget about the burning bones and the burning flesh and all that. It's just like, really, wait, the good stuff comes later. Um, and so you have to present it. You know, you got to start with the corpse. You got to burn the corpse. Um, and it's hard to resist the image of a dead body sitting up um of its own accord as the tendons are pulled as they heat up and shrink they shrivel pulling the body up um but yeah the light that's what i wanted to show you there's light in the bones can you believe this so and there's what? light everywhere i mean it's, it's so much of i mean that's one of the the things that in my practice that i've tried to look for i mean i have poems from some of my earliest books i talked you know, where, where the light is just, you know, finding light um, in, in places you don't expect to find it. Um, bouncing off a stream or, or uh, you know, a beam of light coming through where it's all darkness, but one beam of light. I have a poem about that where my son is sitting someplace in the sun. My son is being hit by sunlight that is just in this one little beam shooting right at him and he turned gold. What do you do with that? You know, it, it's, and so there's, I have a lot of poems about, about um, light sneaking up on us and illuminating things that we thought we knew. And, and then we find out that we don't know anything about them at all. There's so much more there. Well, yeah, that's the poet's job and the job that you've chosen really in illuminating all of this or just the, the mindfulness, which is something that I'm struck with uh, in reading your poetry, is just those little bits. It's just those little bits. And um, I think, you know, something that um, the poet Jane Hirschfield said about your poetry, which I just want to read because it so captures, I think, what you do. Gary Young has honed a sinuous, brief prose poem form that carries a flavor uniquely its own, unflinching, stringent in beauty, austerely moving. These are poems that swerve, surprise, and still see and feel with one-pointed clarity. Taken together, they create a volume both subtle and powerful. I mean, that's Jane Hirschfield, so she's, she's a master, right? But she, <laughs> I, think she, I think she put, she very uh, well captured what you do with your poetry. So it's just being able to see, and you know, you have a lot of poems about family, about friends, about the natural world, but there's just this incredible thread of eroticism that runs through 
everything, which I think is what makes it so profound and so full. And so, and yet there is that austerity to it. So I'm not sure if I have a question to follow up on that, but if you want to talk about that particular, your ability to do that and how you come by it. Well, I, I'm obsessed with bodies. Um, and so, I mean, raising children, my boys are uh, 34 and 23. So we had kids in the house for over 20 years. Um, and frankly, we had them back in the house during the <laughs> pandemic. Um, but, um, you know, so when you say erotic, you're absolutely right. But, and even though there is some sexuality in some of my poems, um, the eroticism that I'm interested in is, is, is the, uh, the palpability, the, the density, the, 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 uh, the pull of bodies, um, as bodies, I mean, it can be the body of an animal, it can be the, the body of a stone. Um, but in my case, so many of them are, you know, the bodies of children, bodies of my wife, you know, um, and that was a weird slip. She only has one body, but the body of my wife when she was 26 <laughs> is different than the body of my wife at 62. Of course. And so, and so all that changes. And just as, um, you know, is there anything nicer than grabbing the butt of a, you know, one-year-old baby and you're changing the baby and you can hold the butt in your whole hand, I mean, the whole thing in your head. It's just, you know, it's wonderful. Or those feet, those hands. Yeah, bite their, you know, the knuckles because yeah. they're so fat. Um, and then, you know, now in my 30s, I don't know if my son would really like me grabbing his Probably butt. Probably not. But um, <laughs> but there's other things, you know. You know, I can, I can hug him and I can feel his beard and all the things that change as the body's go through what they go through. And then watching, you know, uh, uh, my father died when he was 87. My friend Gene died at 87. And um, uh, my wife's mother is 95. And, and we spent a lot of time with her and watching those. I mean, when I met Florence, she was younger than my wife is now by kind of a lot. So it's interesting, you know, I've known her um, for a very long time and she was younger than my wife is now. And now she's a 95 year old woman and those changes have been really fascinating and, and, and kind of glorious. Yeah. Well, that's just a testament to the poem, poetry you write and the, your powers of observation and not the observation, not only the observation, but the keen sense of love and involvement that you have with life that I think your poems so wonderfully evoke. So Gary, that's the, all the time. I could keep talking for a long time. That's so great to talk to you. And, uh, I want to I want to thank you for being here with the hive and thank you to all our listeners for um, tuning in and be sure and check out the hivepoetry.org and you can also go to Facebook and Twitter and find us there. Good night everyone and thank you all for being here. <laughs>